The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you'll take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I am uh, so grateful to be in this series with you. I sincerely wish, this is not pastoral sour grapes, I sincerely wish I had the opportunity to preach this to everyone and that everyone would desire to hear this, not because of the work I've done in it or not because of the quality of my work, but because of the subject matter itself uh, that is before us in God's Word and the absolute crucial nature of what we are looking at. Look with me in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let me just take a moment to remind you from last Lord's Day sermon, uh, as I tried to lay out what we're doing in this series, I tried to give you the, the package as I see it, Um, As I look around at the movement of progressive secularism in the culture and what is called progressive Christianity inside the church, it seemed to me that it is at that point we desperately need to understand and build upon the foundations that God has revealed in His Word, and that that is where we need to go. I think I mentioned to you one of my favorite uh, studies and uh, uh, biographies I read was called My Story of Jack Nicholas and how he would take two months off every year at the end and for refreshment. And then as the new year, the new season began, he would go to his coach, Mr. Grout, and he would make this statement, uh, Mr. Grout, teach me to play golf. Now, that's, ast- that's astonishing to me. Here is the greatest golfer, arguably, that's ever lived in his prime, and every year he started with the basics. That's what he started with. He would go to the essentials. I remember reading while I was in college Ben Hogan's The Five Principles of Golf and just how foundational they were and what he said was so crucial. And if you get these right, he said, it's amazing what will happen shot after shot after shot. So I think the same thing's true in every area of life. Great athletes, great businessmen and women I have seen, and great Christians. It's not so much their novelty or their ingenuity and great churches. It is the fact that they believe the essentials and the foundations that God has given. And when the time of challenge comes, they are able to repeat them with intentionality and excellence in the midst of adversity, and they continue to repeat them. 
If you go into the military, say if it was uh, you decided you wanted to sign up and be a Marine, and they'd take you to Paris Island. And what they would do is not just teach you how to dress like a soldier and clean your weapon. They would put you through weeks of adversity and teach you the essentials of what it means to be a combat Marine or a combat soldier in the Army or a combat seaman and um, or a combat aviator so that when the challenge of adversity in combat comes, you automatically repeat out of learning and out of commitment, and you repeat with excellence under pressure that which is crucial. There is no doubt culturally there's pressure. There is no doubt that within the church, the evangelical church, not the mainline church that fell a long time ago to liberal Christianity, and it's on the dustbin of history unless God visits him, visits it with revival. But the evangelical church that was formed out of a, out of a commitment to the scripture. There's no doubt that there is a theological adulteration that's leading to theological apostasy because there is a loss of what the mission, the message, and the ministry is for Christ's church. So it is my opinion as a pastor that I could invest in you. So it was no accident that we went through the essential foundations that the church has used to worship disciple, and defend the faith for 2,000 years. And that is the Apostles' Creed as I walked you through those essential foundations. And there is no doubt in my mind, I would love to take you to, that's 101, I'd love to take you to 301 and to take the Westminster Confession of Faith with the larger and shorter catechisms. That's a distillation of the sublime foundations for the Christian life that brings us together and sends us out for Christ, knowing who we are and what we're supposed to do. But I have felt all along that there was something that belonged at that 201 level, something that moved from the essential foundations to the effectual foundations. And I think the place to go to thematically for it is what God gives us foundationally as he begins the process of unfolding his revelation to us in the word of God. That the book of Genesis is as absolutely crucial for us to understand. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind as to why the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation are under continual attack in the field of scholarship day after day. So I, I unabashedly tell you I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I unabashedly tell you I believe Genesis is inspired and errant and uh, in what it says, in the context of what it says. And I also believe that it is arranged in a way that's crucial for us to understand what I call the effectual foundations. And those effectual foundations are those foundations for life that help you make up your life view. I tried last week to give you life view that's motivated by a life love that results in a lifestyle. Your lifestyle is going to be framed by who you learn from. When all said and done, the pupils become like their teachers. And your lifestyle is ultimately, in the midst of adversity, going to reflect what you're learning. It is no it is no, um, it is no uh, um, accident at all that in the great parable of the sower, 
that speaks of sowing the Word of God upon the hearts of people. That Jesus said, if you don't get this parable right, you can't get any of them right. And at the conclusion of it, in one gospel, he says this, pay close attention who you listen to. And in another gospel, he says this, pay close attention to what you hear. Or the beatitude of the Old Testament, how blessed, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Who are your teachers and your counselors? Does not stand in the path of sinners. What is your lifestyle? Does it uh, flee temptation? Do you resist the evil one? And then he says, and do not sit in the seat of the scorner. Who are your intimate counselors, mentors, um, friends in the Lord and fellows in the Lord? Who are they? Those things are going to come out in your lifestyle, and adversity will not dictate who you are. It will reveal who you are. And that will reveal who you have listened to and what you have listened to. So I believe that the life love is what motivates us. We have two loves, primary loves in our life. One is the love of the Lord that we have for him. And, and secondly is the love he first had for us. The love of Christ compels us. And I believe that that leads us to wanting, when we have the heart for Christ, life love, then we want the mind of Christ. When you become a Christian, you get a new family. You get a new record. You get a new heart. You get a new perspective. You get a new home. You get all of those things secured for, by Christ for you. But you don't get a new mind. But you get a call to renew your mind by the power of the Spirit of God using the Word of God in your life. So that you think the thoughts of God in the context of a world that is arrayed against God. And because it can't get its hands on God, it'll get its hands on God's people. So how do you and I respond to that? How do we deal with that? And are we ready to respond to this? I'm going to conclude tonight with a statement. I believe the dissipation, the despair, the division, the depression... And all that you see around you that I'm watching in the culture and I'm watching even in the evangelical church actually is an unbelievably great opportunity for us. But it's not the last thing from last week from Psalm 11. If the foundations are shaken, what will the righteous do? Foundations can be shaken. That's why even as we're studying the foundation, I pled with you last week, you don't put your confidence in the foundations. Psalm 11 says, in the Lord I take refuge. Though the arrow is in the bow, fitted and aimed at me, though the world would stand against me, in the Lord I take refuge. And with our confidence in the Lord, now we can embrace the foundations for life. 
And I'm just going to walk through with you. We had 13 um, essential foundations from the Apostles' Creed. And in these coming weeks, I want to give to you 15 essential foundations from the book of Genesis. And the first one, dare I say it, if you get that one wrong, the rest of them you're going to get wrong. And that is the sanctity, these 15 sanctities, things that God has set apart to be at the foundation of our life, the sanctity of divine revelation, the sanctity of divine revelation for the life of a believer as they establish the foundations of life with the Lord being our refuge. So, and with that before us, there's a couple of passages of Scripture that immediately begin to step, uh, that begin to stand out for me. And if you don't mind tonight, because I've got so much to cover with you, um, and can I say something? This sermon deserves, I counted it, 12 sermons. So, uh, just go ahead. I make no apology. I'm only informing you a fire hose is about to be stuck down your throat right now. And so you can go visit the website. You can go back over it. And perhaps even a series of sermons in the future can be devoted to this to further flesh it out for us and to break it down for us. But when you come to the passage of the Lord's high priestly prayer, what a rich text where we see the heart of Christ and the hope that Christ has secured for us. There are seven intercessory requests he makes of the Father in the high priestly prayer in John 17. The middle of them is that we would be holy. But in the midst of it, he says this for us, Father, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Well, what's truth? Thy word is truth. Doesn't contain truth, is truth. Doesn't become truth, is truth. Doesn't doesn't just simply support truth, it is the truth. Sanctify them in the truth, thy word. Word is truth. And then previously in that wonderful passage of John 14, when he tells us he's going away to prepare a place for us. And you remember good old Thomas who can come up with the question of questions. Well, Lord, what do you mean the way? We don't even know where you're going. You remember what he said to his disciples at that point? You know what it is. One of the great privileges I had in life and ministry in Charlotte was... um, um, there weren't that many Reformed and Presbyterian churches there, so I got called on to go into public debates all the time there. And um, there was a guy that we kind of be, got to be known as the opposing position, secular, a, a secular world in life view, and, and, term, and then I, of course, would present a sacred world in life view. Now, of course, he's the guy that had the radio program, not me, and he had a radio station that he was on that was 100,000 watts, not me, and uh, but he would invite me, and, um, and his name was Jerry. He um, would present himself as a Jewish atheist, and, um, and we actually became good friends. In fact, the last person I had coffee with before I came to Birmingham from Charlotte was Jerry. 
Um, Jerry has since died. I tried to reach out to him in his last days because we had talked many, talked many times about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there was one time I distinctly remember and one debate that we were having one night on WBT radio. And uh, as we were on WBT radio and having this debate, he said, um, he said, you know, I just don't like the arrogance of your position. So I said, Jerry, do you think I'm arrogant? He said, well, no, I kind of like you, but your position is arrogant. And I said, well, what is it? He says, you think Jesus is the only way. I said, I do think that. And in fact, I know that. And I believe that. And in fact, I've given my life to that. That's why I'm here to talk with you and through you to anybody else that will listen. But Jerry, I didn't come up with that. I did not, when I graduated from East Mecklenburg High School, say, now philosophically, what could I come up with that would stir up the feathers? I just became a Christian, and I am reporting to you what Jesus said. John 14, I am the way, the way, lifestyle. I am the truth, a Christ-saturated life view. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And he is my love. I love him who first loved me. And because he called me and because I love you and I was where you were, I am glad to report that to you. I didn't come up with it. I'm just the the amplifier. I'm I'm the speaker that it's coming through. This is what he said. And he said, well, that's just what I think that's arrogant. So I said, so now... Praise the Lord, you don't think I'm arrogant, but you think Jesus is arrogant, right? And so this was an interesting broadcast we were having here. And then he said, uh, said, well, just, Harry, how can you believe that? I said, well, let me put it this way, Jerry. Jesus says in his word, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's been revealed to us. So we've got three possibilities. Number one. Jesus was wrong, and I'm wrong, and you're right. The second possibility is Jesus is right, and therefore I'm right because I'm reporting to you what he said, and you're wrong. Or the third possibility, we're both wrong. But let me tell you what can't be true. We're not both right. We can't both be right. And the most important decision you'll ever make is when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, is that the truth? Through which everything else, that's the frame, that's the filter, and that's the focus. That's really the decision before you And before me, and according to Jesus, all of eternity and today rest upon what you will do with that. Well, he said, well, what if I don't think it's the truth? Well, then you'll either be right, you'll be wrong, but we both can't be right. 
So how is it that men and women pursue the truth? Let me get that first of all. Here's the, here's the first thing, the sanctity of truth and what we're looking at here. Can you go to the next slide, please? Is that the sanctity of divine right? How do we, here's the question. How do we truly know and how do we know what we know is true? Now, if you want the word for it, it's called epistemology. But uh, how, how is it, how, it, how do we truly know, and how do we know what we know is true? How can that possibly be ascertained? Well, humanity has three approaches to that, and you're doing one of these three. Number one, you know what is true, and you know it's true by human reason, by human reason alone. Secondly, that's, by the way, where most of our culture is. Most of our culture is, it's human reason alone. But there's another one that has now come to ascendancy in our culture, is that here's how you know what's true and if what you know is true. By human reason, experience, and investigation. I love it when someone says to me, says, Harry, uh, science says, and then I always say to them, science says at the moment. When I first went to school, science told me that the universe was finite. By the time I got to junior high, it was infinite. By the time I got to uh, college, it was not finite, not infinite. It was infinitely expanding. Now, at what point was science right? And is this the point that it's right, or is it going human reason, experience, and investigation? Can I give you a clue? When you open, when you go to a Bible study, and somebody says, "What does this text mean to you?" They're in one of these two categories. Bible study is not finding out what the text means to you, but what does God mean in the text? And then you respond to it with investigation and experience. Or I will be sharing the gospel. Here's one I love. I'll be sharing the gospel. Y'all know my favorite fishing pool is an airplane with turbulence. And then I'll, and someone will say to me at that place in that plane, and as I'm sharing the gospel, well, you know, um, I think God, or my God, and I said, well, wait, 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 wait. You have your own personal God? Well, you know what I mean. No, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I've been sharing you with you what not my God is that I have come up with by reason, experience, and investigation I am sharing with you the God who has revealed himself in his word. And is that true? Because God says his word is truth. So number three is this. You know truth and you know what you know is true by what? By divine revelation and Holy Spirit, I ran out of room, Holy Spirit enabled, empowered illumination, 
as the word as the divine revelation from God becomes your frame whereby everything you know fits in and if it doesn't fit in it then it's not true it becomes your filter when sociology comes to you, psychology comes to you, mathematics comes to you, spelling comes to you, uh, geometry comes to you, um, anthropology comes to you, when they all come to you, does it fit in the frame and then you filter the claims that are made to you as people observe the, uh, the creation and experience and then it gives you your focus to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So now we've said, how do I know what is true and how can I, uh, and how, is it come by my reason? No, it comes by divine revelation, not human reason. Does it come by my human reason and aided with my inept investigation and experiences? I mean, how many Christians do I meet that build their Christian life on experiences instead of the Word of God whereby they interpret their experiences? That's the frame. That's the filter. And that's the focus. And so when you do that, when you do that, now you've got something in place whereby you investigate all the claims that come to you and whereby you examine the experiences of life whereby you look at them. So it is divine revelation. Now, pastor, if it's divine revelation, I'd like to get a hold of this divine revelation. Well, how does God communicate? Let's go to this one. How does God communicate his divine revelation to us? God communicates his divine revelation two ways. One, we call general revelation. Now, why is it called general revelation? Because it's available to everyone. It is accessible to everyone. And then special revelation. Let's take up general revelation first. Divine revelation communicated to us in general revelation. And that comes with three, um, three venues into our life. Number one is creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, night after night, his speech pours forth. His handiwork is seen. You see who he is. And of course, you can remember 20, I'm sorry, you can remember 17 sermons ago in the book of Romans. Where was 17 sermons ago in the book of Romans? Well, go with me in your Bibles now to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And go with me. We'll just pick up at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress what? Truth. What truth are they suppressing? What can be known about God? It's not a mystery. It's plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his external power, I mean his eternal power 
and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. They suppress the truth, notice, not in ignorance. It's known to them. You know, when I stand over here and and do a baptism of a covenant child, there's two things I know about that child. Number one, that child knows God. Externally, in creation, he has revealed himself. Internally, in their heart, he has established his presence in their very conscience. Now, you did not hear me say, let your conscience be your guide. Do, I did not say that. But the reality of conscience, something's right, something's wrong. We're accountable. Justice. Where did that come from? I mean, you don't find wildebeest having courtrooms. They are within us. We know that. Creation and conscience. God's general revelation goes to all of humanity by the creation outside of us that speaks to us and by our conscience inside of us that bears, the scripture says in Romans 2, bears witness alternately excusing and accusing us. And, and history, which is God's providence. We used to, in Christian schools, have what I wish we still had, entire departments on historical theology. History is his story. So God is bearing witness to us, revealing himself to all of humanity through creation, conscience, and history. By the way, I said I know a second thing about this child. This child is dead in their sins and will suppress that truth unless God's revealed truth in his word by his spirit sets them free. We call it what the Bible calls it, eyes to see and ears to hear. And so here is humanity that is, has God's general revelation given to us and God's special Revelation. Now, what is God's special revelation? Would you take your Bibles and go with me to Hebrews chapter 1? Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to go to a couple of passages. Just, you're back in the youth group. Sword drill. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Do not, I know it says Hebrews, but do not go to the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 1. And I want to read to you a couple of verses from chapters 1 and 2. I'd love to read to you a lot of verses, but I only got time to read a couple of them. Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God 
spoke special revelation, not to everybody, to our fathers. How? By the prophets. He's speaking of the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. General revelation comes from Christ. Special revelation comes from God through Christ to us. And he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. But now go to chapter 2 with me. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, God's revelation is reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It, Christ and salvation, was declared at first by the Lord, And it was attested to us by those who heard. That would be the apostles. Now you got the New Testament. Well, who speaks for God? Those whom he's given his credentials. While God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what did he just tell you? General revelation is available to all. Special revelation God has given whereby he reaches the hearts of those who are his people who believe and repent and come to him. That special revelation, just like general revelation comes with creation, conscience, and history, special revelation comes through Christ and his incarnation. He presents to you the glory of the Father veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He has revealed God to us in the flesh. And then, through the apostles, he has completed the scriptures so that he speaks through his word. The scriptures. The prophets give us the Old Testament as God spoke through them. And the apostles give us the New Testament And God gave them the credentials of signs, wonders, and miracles so we know they were agents of revelation that God was giving us the Scriptures. So the Bible says we are built on the foundation. Hear that? The foundation of what? The apostles and the prophets. The Scriptures. Old and New Testament. Old Testament in which Christ is revealed but concealed. The New Testament where Christ is revealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, as Augustine said. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So we have special revelation. Now, follow with me. General revelation and special revelation both come from God, so they bear the attributes of God. Is general, is special revelation, is God's word inerrant? 
Hello? What about general revelation? It's inerrant. Now, those interpreting it, scientists, sociologists, anthropologists, they may get it wrong, but there's nothing wrong in God's general revelation. It is infallible. It is inerrant. God's special revelation, infallible, inerrant. And by the way, the interpreters of God's special revelation, preachers, (laughs) Bible study leaders, sometimes get that wrong, just like a scientist gets general revelation wrong. That's why we don't rely on the instruments that teach us. We rely on the scriptures that interpret themselves because it's God's word. And so here is God revealing himself in divine revelation and general and special revelation, but special revelation is, is the preeminent over general revelation. Why? Because of its detailed content and because of its sufficiency. Did you just hear me tell you that general revelation is inerrant? Did you just, let's, let's, let's act like we're not Presbyterians, okay? Let's act like it. Just fool somebody for the next 30 minutes. So, is general revelation inerrant? Yeah. Is it infallible? Is special revelation inerrant? Is it infallible? Is special revelation sufficient? Is general revelation sufficient? No. No, it's not. It can give us the knowledge of God, and it shows our rebellion, but it is not sufficient to save us. If general revelation was sufficient, and everybody who has it is innocent, the last thing you and I ought to have this year is a missions conference. When we send special revelation and they reject him, they're under his judgment. Well, if they're okay from general revelation, why send the word? General revelation is not sufficient to save. That's why Christ comes in incarnation, and that's why the scriptures are given by inspiration. Harry, now we know Jesus comes, and he is 100% God and 100% man, right? That's incarnation. Well, the scriptures bear the same uh, profile. The scriptures are 100% God and 100% man. But God's authorship through man is what secures its infallibility and inerrancy. And that's why the Bible tells us, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, actually the word pantes there means every single Scripture. Every Scripture is God-breathed, theonoustos, and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It is sufficient through divine inspiration. 1,600 years, the divine author gives us his word 
through human authors using their full humanity so that we have an inerrant, infallible, sufficient word that has been given to us through human authors by the Holy Spirit, which is why the prophets didn't say, Thus saith Isaiah. What did he say? Thus saith the Lord. Which is why Paul would say, I am glad you received this for what it is, the Word of God, not the Word of man. And that the Scriptures of the New Testament, like the Old Testament, have been given by God, Old Testament through the humanity. By the way, he used these prophets, all their humanity. If you don't believe it, go take Greek and look at Peter's Greek and look at Paul's Greek. It's two different Greeks. Because they, one was formally trained and the other was trained out of a fishing boat. And you can feel it and you can see it. And God did all of that sovereignly to get the message he wanted to get through Peter and the message he wanted to get through Paul and the message he wants to get through Jude and the message he wants to get through James. The word of God through human authors that is God's word and God can't err. Let every man be a liar. But God speaks the truth. Thus we have a word, but unlike general revelation, it is sufficient to save you and show you the Savior and how to live for him. Creation, I know there's a God. You have to sophisticate yourself into imbecility to become an atheist. It is the fool that has said there is no God. But I would never know from general revelation he dwells as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I would never know he redemptively, savingly loves me. I would never know the majesty of his patience and mercy. But the scriptures reveal the fullness of God in Christ who tells us the glory of the Father and sends us the Holy Spirit who works in and through and upon us. Go to one other passage with me. Go to Second Peter. Just keep going to your right. If you get to Revelation, you're too far. If you get to John, too far. Jude, nope. Go back, backwards. If you go to First Peter, guess what? You're close. Second Peter... Go to um, chapter 1. Look with me. Uh, I, well, there's so much I want to speak to you on, but um, let me just start at verse 18. For we did not follow cleverly designed, devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation Savior. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son. Boy, can't you imagine that time on the Mount of Transfiguration? That's what he's referring to. With whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word, Old Testament, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. 
God's divine revelation. It's a, like a lamp signed, shining in the darkness of a fallen world. Until the day dawns, that's when the Savior returns. And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy that is no word from the Lord through a human author was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, theonoustos, carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried along is a tough word to translate. Basically, it means it's a noun ferry boat turned into a verb as men were ferried along by the Holy Spirit and God spoke to us through them. Well, I've got to just give you these last ones uh, and then, um, and then uh, finish up. What are the attributes of divine revelation? That is, now that we have, spe- and we focus upon the, pre- the priority of special revelation in order to understand general revelation, what are the things that we know about this divine revelation? Number one is the doctrine of infallibility. I tried to emphasize it because I read it twice in the text that I read to you. I won't go back over it. God's word is reliable. It cannot be broken. It's like the hammer that breaks the rock as well as the bomb of Gilead to soothe the soul. It is a reliable word, the doctrine of infallibility. Because it comes from God, it has power. The word, the living and abiding word of God, which is able to, which is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing thoughts and, um, and intentions of the heart, even as bone and marrow. It is gloriously God's word. Now, why do, you, why is, why do we have this revelation, general and special? Because of God. What is an attribute of God? God is what? Light. What does light do? It reveals and dispels darkness. Because God is gracious, because God is almighty, now God's found a way for us to be able to receive his attribute of light. He has revealed himself generally and specially. And because his special revelation has been given to us, it is, it is infallible. It is reliable. Secondly is the doctrine of inerrancy. Because God is the author through the human authors and let every man be a liar, but God speaks the truth, then God ferried these men along. He breathed his word through them. So we have the clear, we have an inerrant word. It's trustworthy. Pastor, how far does inerrancy go? Every jot and tittle. tittle. We believe in, listen to this please, verbal, in terms of God's revealed word, we believe in inerrancy, verbal plenary. Every word and even the order of the word. God reveals himself to you, not in the words, but the way he structures them. You do know the Ten Commandments are in the order they're in for a reason. You do know the Old Testament is where it is, and the New Testament's where it is for a reason. I love something my son passed on to me. I, I'm going to take the time. Hopefully I've got time to read it to you, uh, if I can find it. 
When we, when we distill repeated patterns from the Bible, we are seeking to pay attention to them, not only to what the Bible says in every word in the passage, but how it presents itself in every passage from Genesis to Revelation. Put another way, we read the Bible and we see not only the words down to the jot and tittle. Jot is the small, Yoda, smallest letter, tittle, smallest punctuation. Down to the jot and tittle, but we not only read the Bible, to see the words, we see the set of patterns, the dispositions through which we can think about everything that comes to us in life. The Bible offers the vision of biblical doctrine and not only a series of propositional truths. It is a framework for understanding any and all facts from his word and from general revelation. As we approach the Bible, not as a story within reality, but God's story of reality. And, in, and as the reality itself within, it becomes and makes all other stories necessary in how they are to be understood and in their very existence. Well, so you've got the doctrine of infallibility. You've got the doctrine of inerrancy, verbal, every word, plenary, even the order and structure of the words. Number three, the doctrine of perspicuity. I got two big words for you. This is one of them. Perspicuity, that does not mean the Bible sweats. That's not what it means. That means it's clear that you can see with clarity. That it has its truths presented with clarity, with consistency, with integrity, without contradiction. As the words and the pattern come to us. That leads us to the doctrine of sufficiency. All that I need. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes this. I see the light of God's revelation. He said, and it's like a ray from the sun. He talks about the time when he was out and he saw the ray of the sun coming through the trees. The ray of the sun pointed him back to the sun. God reveals himself. But the ray of the sun enlightened everything else that it could be clear and understood. The doctrine of sufficiency. But wait just a minute. Harry, doesn't Peter say that Paul writes of things as he does as the rest of the Scriptures? Some things hard to understand? Absolutely. Not everything in the Bible is equally clear. That's where you've got to learn to do something. Now, here's your choice. Over here is Roman Catholicism, and they say when you get to those things that are tough to understand, ask me. And the reformer said, when you get to those things that are tough to understand, praise God for teachers. Praise God for commentaries. But when you get to texts that are hard to understand, ask the scriptures. It's called, here's your second one, analogia de fide. By faith, because we believe the Bible is infallible, inerrant, perspicuity, and sufficiency. When you get to tough passages, the Bible cannot contradict itself. So the best way to understand a tough passage is to go to the clear passage. Because it can't contradict this. So it's not the church that's the interpreter through its counsels. We're grateful for interpreters, teachers, counsels, 
uh, creeds, confessions. But the final authority of Scripture, which is our final authority, is the Scripture that interprets itself. That is, by faith we believe the integrity and consistency of the Bible. Number five is the doctrine of availability and accessibility. The Word of God and the Spirit of God has been given to us. We have divine revelation and the work of the Holy Spirit among us through the gifts of the Spirit, preachers, teachers, your Bible, and the Holy Spirit at work in your heart so that you can understand it. Therefore, my dear friends, you must give yourself to the means of grace, the private means of grace, your closet of prayer, your personal Bible study. The Bible is not a magic book. If I buy one and put it on the coffee table, the vibrations are going to seep into my life. Study to show yourself approved as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then the public means of grace, pastoral preaching, Worship, fellowship. Y'all do realize this morning in the divine service of worship, God's word was presented to you. We read it. We sung it. We prayed it. We confessed it. We preached it. And that's how you know the God of the word. The public means of grace and the private means of grace. I don't have time to turn there. I'll sum it up with with the Bereans. The Bereans, Acts 17, 11, the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, for they received the word with eagerness. That's the public means of grace. And they examined the scriptures. What's the next word? Daily. That's why we talk about quiet times. They examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Why do they go to the Scriptures? We pray, praise God for their preacher. Let me repeat that. Praise God for their preacher. But he's not the final word. The final word on the Scriptures is the Scriptures. Examining the Scripture to see if these things are so. So let me give you the takeaway. Here's your takeaway. And I'm through. Not one minute. I'm through. Life takeaway. Here it is. The scripture. Biblical magisterium. God's word rules, not the culture. Sola scriptura. The scripture alone is our only rule of faith and practice. The scripture alone is our only authoritative and trustworthy rule of faith and practice. It gives you your framework. Someone sends to you a book that's on uh, critical race theory, sends you a book on sexual ethics, sends you a book on uh, anthropology, sends you this. I get them all the time. You have no idea how many recommendations I get for me to read. But when I read them, I got a, I got a framework that got to fit in. It's the scripture. I've got a filter that I filter everything that says it's the scripture. And I've got to focus the glory of God and enjoy him forever through the preeminence of Christ as creator, redeemer, and sustainer as he reveals himself in his word. That's biblical magisterium. That's sola scriptura. Hear the word with eagerness. Examine the scriptures to see if these things are so. 
I'll finish where I started. Are you living in a culture of division? Are you a part of that or a part of the kingdom? Speaking to that. Are you getting your life view from the left and the right or from the Scripture? If we get our life view from the Scripture and the life love of Christ compels us, then we'll have a lifestyle that as much as my heart breaks for the dissipation, the division, the despair, and the discouragement I see around me, I also see an opportunity. What if they saw us not in despair, but in the hope of Christ revealed in His Word? What if they saw us not divided by the sociological and political movements of the day, but unified in Christ, patiently loving one another, not counting wrongs against each other, love covering multitudes of sin? What if they saw not division, but unity in Christ and the Spirit and the Word? What if they saw not despair, but hope? What if they saw not depression, but exhilaration of the joy of the Lord in everything? What if if they saw people who knew how to love one another, male and female, how to embrace a biblical sexual ethic, How to love life in a culture of death. Death, despair, division, depression. What if they saw hope, joy, and instead of a dissipated families, families that are built on the rock? What if they saw that? Do y'all see this moment as much as it pains me? This is a great opportunity. But you got to start with the Word of God. By the power of the Spirit of God, bathed in prayer. Used to, when you came to a table like this in a church, it would have three things on it. The cup, the plate, and the open Bible. For through the sacraments defined by the Word of God, And the intercessory prayers of God's people. Christ speaks. And we hear him. And we follow him. Father, thank you for the moments. Thank you for the book of Genesis that gives us the glorious information we need. Where did we come from? Where did sin come from? What is a man? What is a woman? What is marriage? What is all of that? But it speaks authoritatively. It's the first book of the glorious book of divine revelation. The Word of God. We can know the Word of God and not know the God of the Word. But we cannot know and make known the God of the Word without the Word of God. Spirit of God, please have that Word preached taught in every community, every small group, every sermon in this congregation. Faithful 
biblical songs, faithful prayers, faithful confessions, faithful preaching, and faithfully loving the Word together and eagerly receiving it while privately examining the Scriptures daily. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.